everybody. This is episode five now of Alto Performance Insights. Daniel, it's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. How's everything going? Going well. Uh, doing a little bit of traveling back home for for a wedding this weekend, but other than that, things are things are going really well. Oh, so uh, you're back in you're in Cleveland right now? Yeah, I'm back nice. in Cleveland, so back in the back in the East Coast. So, are you uh, avoiding the hurricane? Uh, we're supposed to get most of the weather today, but we're far enough inland. We get the we get the uh, we get the cooler weather and a little bit of rain from the hurricane. So it's <laughs> actually, you know, yesterday it's like ninety, and today it's like seventy. So, oh, geez. and this one's with Sally, right? Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe. Thanks. Hopefully, everyone down there at the coast is staying safe. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people are evacuating. So. That's good. Yeah. Uh, both of us lived in North Carolina. That was a, a bit of a reality we grew to grew to know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is uh, the first one in a couple of weeks where it's going to be just the two of us um, taking a break from some of our, our honored guests, but uh, just want to, let's take some time and catch up. I know um, you've been posting a bit um, on our Twitter feed about the, the tour de France and um, definitely like that was something that I think was bigger in the States perhaps when we were younger and all the fascination with Lance Armstrong, but what, what kind of draws you to that? What's, why do you pay attention to that? Yeah, for sure. I think I think Lance is what drove most Americans to the tour. Um, yeah, he was just a rock star. So, but I've always been drawn to it. I, I started getting really into it in high school when I started taking running a little more seriously. Um, and then through college, I watched. <laughs> I, like, I think I've told you this before, but I remember my freshman year at Memphis, I came home for the summer. So it was right after my freshman year, I came home for the summer. And I had a buddy in town that I went to high school with and he was training at Iowa state and we would run in the mornings. We would do our morning run at like 6am or something, get back. I'd watch the end of the tour and then they would have a replay on. So I'd watch the end of the tour after the run. And then I would watch the replay and then I would take a nap and then we would go for our afternoon run. And then I would watch the nightly replay too. So I was watching the same stage like two and a half times every day. Uh, so I don't know what it is. Yeah, I particularly like the mountain stages. I like seeing the riders. Um, I like seeing them suffer. I put putting themselves. <laughs> I know it's, but they, but it's in internal suffering, right? It's something that they're putting themselves through, and it's uh, inspiring to me. So, kind of that, that mutual appreciation for endurance, and uh, also I think it's the mental game of it. You know, similar to distance running. Similar, I mean, similar to a lot of athletics, but. Um, it really is a mind over matter kind of task. Um, so in, interesting. And then yesterday, I mean, I, I guess I'll let you talk about this, but yesterday there were some, some interesting things happening and people losing sight of the leaders. Yeah. So the defending champion, Egon Bernal, uh, he's a Colombian rider. He, I think it was maybe actually Monday. No, Monday was a rest day. Uh, so maybe it was Sunday. Uh, I forget. So it's stage 15. He, he was, I think within 45 seconds of the leader. And then he just had, he had one bad day. You crack on one climb and all of a sudden you find yourself seven minutes behind the lead. And at this point in the tour, seven minutes back, it's the tour is unwinnable for you. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's, you hate to see that kind of thing happen, but it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we, we had Pete Buscano on, um, talking about always looking forward, never looking backward. And how do you, how do you tell someone that's got another a thousand kilometers to ride 
that was supposed to be in contention for the win, but is now completely out of it? How do you tell them like, Oh no, you just have to keep riding. You know, it's, it's very tough, but he's continuing on. Uh, and they're the team principal, which is basically like the, the team manager, uh, had a great quote. I think we posted it on Twitter. Um, actually tagged Pete in it. It's, he said something like today was, uh, our first day towards trying to win the tour next year. And so right. I mean, what a great attitude. And that's what you have to have. You really do. And that's in any sport. Right. Um, yeah, the tour is just particularly yeah. grueling because you have to continue to climb mountains <laughs> on a bicycle for, for six days. And I think, uh, I think in, in some of the more Olympic or less um, financially driven sports, like uh, that is uh, even more of a mind game, right? Because like, like let's say say I'm playing in the MLB, but you know my team's been eliminated. I'm still getting massive paychecks just for showing up to the ballpark and playing. Not not to oversimplify it, but that is that is true. Uh, in cycling and running and in gymnastics and a lot of these sports yes there are the sponsorships and so forth but the vast majority of that is going to come from the winnings um in golf uh, you know if you're a lower end tour player you're grinding uh, you know not granted you put it all together for one weekend and you know make a seven figure check you know <laughs> that helps out an awful lot but when you know that you're out of contention like, how do you just keep going? Yeah. Yeah. And there's the, the other interesting thing about the tour is there's a bit of a team aspect to it. It's not really as, I would say, as prestigious as winning the yellow jersey, winning the overall race as an individual. But uh, like the, basically the way the tour works is our team set up for one rider to win. And so you've got a leader on the team and then everybody else on the team has a role in how they're going to help that person win the right. tour. And so even just imagine being someone that's on the team that's not supposed to be the leader. It's like if you have a bad day, your team, it's not only an individual thing, but your team also is relying on you. So it's, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic with the tour. And I think that's also what draws me to it is that it's, it's unlike anything else. Yeah, no, that, that is true. That's a good point because I mean, like even Lance, you know, he rode with the U S post office team and, kind of related, kind of unrelated. Yesterday on the flight, I was watching Apollo 11. Um, and just this entire time, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, here's Mike Collins piloting the ship. Never gets to set foot on the moon. Doesn't go back in another mission or anything else. Like, just never gets to set foot on the moon. But, like, without him, this doesn't happen. But I, but I wonder, like, who, who got to pick that, right? What was the scenario in which, like, Buzz and Neil get to step foot on the moon and, and how did Neil get to be first? Uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure it was something as simple as rock, paper, scissors or something. It, it <laughs> quite possibly I mean, I'm, and I'm sure those stories are out there. I just don't know them. But not well, it's really. even you all, you know, we know Buzz Aldrin really well because we're both from Ohio. Right. Um, but even when, you know, I think if you mention the name Buzz Aldrin, it's recognizable. But I'd say a lot more people know Neil Armstrong than they do than than Buzz Aldrin. And I would say a significant difference between those two and Michael Collins. Oh, big time. Oh, yeah. 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 So. Where was Michael Collins from? Was he also from Ohio? Couldn't tell you. Oh, maybe that's why. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, Ohio no, has I, the most the most astronauts in right? any yeah. state in the, in the U.S. So. Yeah, something like that. But, all right, so we got the tour going on. 
And then on our website, we've also, we've transitioned from talking about capturing movements and now capturing forces, right? Um, and so you put out a post recently about hand grip dynamometers, and we got one coming up about force plates, and that's kind of what we're gonna dive into today. Um, so today we're gonna go through kind of force plates and the role that they play, but then specifically let's look at some data, how we might process it as sports scientists. Um, and I think force plates are something that there's a lot of different variations of. Um, and so, you know, sometimes like they can be quite expensive. Sometimes they can be a little bit more cost efficient. Um, but something that I do think is advantageous in athletics is it is a piece of equipment that lasts a long time. Uh, the technology in force plates has stayed relatively standard for, what would you say, 30, 40 years now. Um, oh, at least, yeah, at least. I mean, there are upgrades in them, but if you have in the older one, it's not obsolete the same way it might be with a camera system or a software or anything like that. Um, and, and the other thing I think is that they can be used by so many different types of athletes to gain some kind of productive information. So um, something like a training center, having you know, a set of force plates or, or even just a force plate can potentially be very valuable. Uh, even if they're training multiple types of athletes. So I think that's oh, the reasons to dive into that one today. Yeah, it's one of those, it's like a rock in the lab, right? You know, yeah. it's it's going to be reliable as long as you, as long as you, like even if, even if you start noticing the data is drifting off or something, you can just recalibrate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know for sure that the, the uh, force transducers within the plate itself are going to be in the same location. And so it's relatively easy to calibrate. Um, it's incredibly difficult to break a <laughs> force platform. You know, I think you could drop uh, most motion capture cameras. You could drop from like two feet off the ground and it's probably going to break. You, you know, these force platforms are just beasts. So, um, so yeah, I, th I think they're, they're super important and they're just commonplace in most labs and knowing their longevity, knowing their reliability, knowing what kind of data you can pull from it. I think even, Oh, some of the force platforms, I mean, it depends on what you want to call a force platform. If you're calling a force instrumented treadmill, which is a treadmill with force platforms in it, those are going to be very expensive. But if you're just looking at it, a force platform that you're going to put into the ground, it's, you know, I, I think based on what you're getting from it, if you know how to use the data, it's worth it for most places. Right. No, I would, I would absolutely agree with you. So you have some, some data today, right? The, uh, you collect it from a force plate. So the other thing about force plates, um, for people that aren't familiar with them, they collect extremely fast, um, which, is, which is great that they put, out, uh, very, they put out a ton of data. At, most of them collect you know, upwards of 1,000 um, data points per second or 1,000 hertz. Uh, one of the things about that is that puts out a ton of data. Um, and so it can be overwhelming if you're just looking at numbers. If you're looking at the graphs, it can make a little bit more sense. So often that's how we view force data. Um, but Dan, you have some ready to go today. So um, we're going to do a little screen share and kind of walk through processing some force data. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to share my screen. And while I'm doing this, we'll just talk a little bit about uh, the data that I have. Okay, so Chris, can you see MATLAB? Yes. Okay, so... You got the dark background on that. Oh, uh, that's okay. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can revert it if you want me to. No, you still see it. I just didn't didn't know it was coming. <laughs> uh, you when you're yeah when you regularly code past midnight, I think it's <laughs> it's a little easier on the eyes. Um, but so okay, so we're gonna take some data that I've collected off of two force platforms, and I'm doing a double leg jump. So I've got one foot on each platform, and uh, I basically just stood there for a second and then I squatted down and I jumped in the air and then I landed and I stood there for a second. And so that's the, the data that we'll be looking at. Um, and you know, I think it's just worthwhile to kind of go through the code as well, just so I guess our audience can see how we deal with this kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so I won't walk through any of the specifics, but this first little chunk here is just going to load, load my data. It's set up so that I can actually navigate through, um, like a just a browsing window here all right so this might take just a second so as chris was saying these force platforms are collecting at 1000 hertz that's a thousand frames per second and i have two force platforms here and i think the collection lasted maybe three or four seconds so we're pulling in you know eight thousand data points but we're also pulling in x y and z aspects of that force. So we're not just pulling in a vertical, I'm pulling in a vertical force. So 8,000 data points of a vertical force, an anterior posterior force, a medial lateral force or side to side force. Uh, and then the other thing that a lot of these spit out are the center of pressure data, X, Y. So I could get the center of pressure under my feet. And they also spit out the um, moments, the free moments about the plate. So what we're going to be dealing with today is just strictly the vertical ground reaction force. I think this is with this kind of task, this is mostly what people look at. We're doing a vertical jump. So we're expecting the side to side and fore aft uh, aspects of the force to be relatively low, but that is being spit out and it is being loaded in here. Yeah, that's, those are good points. Um, and the other thing is it's also important to remember anytime you're working with raw data, Anytime you're perhaps designing your own code to process data, you always got to start with, with your goal in mind um, or else you can get really bogged down in the data. So like you just said, um, 8,000 data points in eight different signals. Um, but those eight signals, even for something like just a vertical jump, might be very useful for a specific research question. People that might be interested, I mean, Shelby, we had her on a couple weeks ago. She probably looks quite a bit at medial lateral forces at the knee trying to understand and an interior posterior forces trying to understand you know um, loading on the ACL if you're looking to just simply understand an athlete's power like you said and you're looking at a vertical jump then quite quite probably vertical force is going to be the only thing that you're actually interested in yeah and then certainly once you start applying these forces onto the kinematics that you collect once you start trying to look at yeah ankle joint knee joint hip joint joint level forces and moments, these other components of the force become very important. And the center of pressure is particularly important because you need to know where the force is relative to the body. Right. Um, so yeah. Okay, so uh, the thing I did there while you were talking was I just parsed the data. So I brought in the whole file and then each column of that file, it's just an Excel sheet, is one of those one of those aspects of the force. And so one column is the vertical force for one plate and another column is the vertical force for the other plate. And so you just call this data parsing. I took those two columns and those are the two columns that we're gonna be looking at. 
And I'll go ahead and plot these. Uh, I've plotted the left and the right foot. And then I took the mean of those two as kind of like the net force. So this is the this is the, the, the two legs. So the right leg on all of the plots going forward is red. The left leg is blue. And then the net force is uh, black. I didn't really do too much with the net force in this code. I'm mostly just looking at uh, left and right. And you can start to see already, right? So, okay, so I'm standing on the plate. So the force uh, is roughly equal to my body weight. So really what I should have done here, this net force is actually, it should be the, the combination of these two. It shouldn't be the mean, right? Um, but we don't have to worry about that because I didn't really do anything with it. So I should have added these together instead of mean them. Um, but anyways, if you were to take the sum of my left and right legs, that would be, while I'm just standing still, that would be exactly equal to my body weight. Because I'm sitting there, I've got a body mass, and gravity is accelerating me down. So mass times acceleration is my body weight. This, the force platforms here are basically just acting like a, a scale, a body scale. And then you can see I kind of bend down, I jump up. The force drops to zero because I leave the plate. There's no longer any force being applied to the plate. This is what we would call the aerial phase here. And then I land and you can see there's rapid loading when I, when I land. I kind of come back down, my knees bend a little bit and then I straighten back up and then I'm just standing still at the end. Now, Dan, so you have never had a major lower extremity injury, right? Correct, correct. And and just something to, to throw out there here, just looking at this very standard jump, and I know we're going to break the code down even more, but especially looking at the landing uh, phase, it's very quick to see there's a dramatic difference between your right and left legs. Yeah. In an athlete that has never had a lower extremity injury and someone who like, you know, might look like they're landing rather balanced, it's probably very hard to see these kinds of things without looking at force placement. So it's just a, a first example of, of why that could be you know, useful for, for a coach or a facility to have. Yeah, you can, you can just by visually plotting it. Now, this is just me doing one jump. Who knows? It might have just been an, what, whatever happened during this one jump. So typically, if you're doing this as an assessment, I would, I would recommend having people do five, six, whatever, you know, more jumps. So you can also see variation. Like maybe this is just, just happened. And then if I would have jumped again, maybe it would have been reversed and then it washes out kind of. Um, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you also want to know, okay, they, they never land symmetrically. <laughs> like there's yeah. no pattern to it, but they never land symmetrically. Uh, so who, maybe that's, uh, it all just comes back to, you could ask this data all sorts of questions. This is a super simple task. I literally just jumped in the air and already you can see there's all sorts of questions you could ask the data. Right. So, okay. So let's ask some of those questions. Okay. So, uh, the first thing I wanted to do is just quantify the air time. It seems that's commonly reported with jumping. Uh, it can give you an idea of how long the athlete was. Well, it gives you how long the athlete was in the air. Um, and that can be important for all sorts of things. So let's go ahead and do that. So the first thing I did is I just, I looked for the uh, start in the end of the the aerial phase and I pl I'll plot that just to ensure that we did that so basically what I was looking for on each leg was where does the force go from above 10 newtons to below 10 newtons so basically when does the person come off of the plate and I called that takeoff 
And then when does the force go from below 10 newtons to above 10 newtons within one frame? And that's the landing. And I did that on each leg. So let's make sure those are identified appropriately. Now, Daniel, why 10 newtons? Why not zero, right? In theory, if you were completely off the plate, you should be at zero. Yeah, you could, I mean, you could do zero. The issue is you're going to have a hard time finding anything that is uh, below zero. You shouldn't ever get anything below zero. Uh, so I did 10 newtons. I mean, at my, my body weight, and you can see when I'm standing here, each leg is applying roughly 290 newtons onto the plate. And so 10 newtons, you know, there might be tiny bits of error in there, but 10 newtons is a very common threshold that people use. Uh, and also most horse plates have a lot of noise in them, uh, naturally. Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, any yes. signal is fluctuating a little bit, so it might hang out around one or two newtons and bounce between zero and that. Yeah, yeah. So having 10 newtons makes a lot of sense in your it's, it's quite common. Yeah, and it, I, uh, I chose 10 because it's, it's just commonly, that's what's commonly used in like running related research. Um, 10 newtons is you know, as soon as the force exceeds 10 newtons, someone's on the plate. And as soon as someone, uh, as soon as it goes below 10 newtons, someone's off of the plate. So, yeah, it's kind of arbitrary. There are certainly analyses that you could run to determine like this predicts it, you know, best mathematically or statistically. Uh, but again, I'm dealing with one jump here. So uh, 10 newtons figured it's probably gonna be good enough. And so I've plotted here the takeoffs. So now we're looking at the right leg on top and the left leg in the bottom graph. The takeoffs are just uh, the, green, the green circles and then the uh, magenta circles are the landings. So you can see that the code that I wrote there uh, identified these time points, at least for this jump really well. Okay, so now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take, basically I'm gonna take, uh, oh, let's also point out that along the x-axis, we're looking at frames, not time. And we're collecting it at a thousand frames per second. So if we want to look at the time difference, what we have to do is subtract the takeoff point from the landing point. And that'll give us the number of frames where the force was zero or below 10 Newtons anyways on the plate. And then what we have to do is convert that from that number of frames to seconds. Mm. Right. So here you just take the, again, you're going to do that subtraction and then you just divide it by a thousand. And I've got these displayed down at the bottom. So let's roll down here really quick. Okay. So now we're looking down here. Can you see me highlighting yep. this part of it? Yeah. So not only did you not land with balanced force, but you didn't even land at the same time. Right, so one leg came down quicker than the now, other. Now we're talking about a hundredth of a second there difference. But <laughs> yeah, you got you a hundredth of a second is there. yeah, and it's and we know that the the force platform is spitting out data faster than that. Right, and so we know that this is within you know within the the force platform's ability to capture that. Now you could take it. You could we could do a thought experiment here, and we could say, you know, if we were collecting at a hundred frames per second, that difference might actually disappear. Oh. Hold on, dog's going crazy or something. That's okay. Oh, I just stopped the share. Hold on. I don't know what's going on out there. I think the wind is bothering her. That's okay. But yeah, so you can see I've got an uneven landing as well. So I'm not even, 
uneven landing force wise and then also um, uneven with just air time. Okay, so the next thing that we might want to look at are the peaks, right? So we've got our air time. I thought the next thing we should probably look at is the peak takeoff force. So right before we take off and then the peak landing force uh, as we land. Now, so in theory, takeoff force, especially if you're doing a counter movement jump where, where the athlete you know, is allowed to kind of sink their hips before it, should actually be relatively close to, to like the bottom as the athlete starts to accelerate back up, correct? Sorry, say that one more time. So if an athlete is, is sinking their hips into a jump, right, if they're, if they're doing a counter movement jump, uh, that peak takeoff force is actually going to be, uh, you know, prior to their toes coming off the plate. It's actually when they're exerting the most force back into the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you don't take the flight time from peak to peak. You actually take it from minimum to minimum. Yes. And so this is, I guess maybe just very basics. Okay, so there's a force platform on the ground. You're applying a force onto it. And what we're looking at is the force that's that's the reaction force. It's gonna be equal and opposite to whatever you're doing. So if there's a high peak, that means you're pressing against the ground very hard, right? And it's just pressing back on you. So what I'm looking at, yeah, are those two peaks. So you saw the peaks right before the aerial phase. You saw the two peaks on either side. That's what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, in MATLAB, this is very easy. You can just use um, a, a built-in function called max to get that. Uh, let's go down here and look at the peak landing force. Okay, so I quantified those two things. Let's just go ahead and display them. This is the peak landing, peak takeoff. Okay, so now again, we're looking down here where the highlighted is and boom, those asymmetries really come out. So if you look at the peak takeoff force on the right leg versus the peak takeoff force on the left leg, you can see the left leg has about 40 Newtons more and then the landing forces are really different. So almost 200 Newtons. <laughs> so like the landing, the peak forces when I land are really different, way higher on the left than the right. And, and Daniel, one of the things that we talk about is like being able to being able to read data is one thing, being able to understand it in the context of, of physiology is another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what what kind of things if, if I were if I were your coach and all of a sudden I got this data, what kind of things, you know, might I be thinking when I see imbalances that are that that dramatic? I mean, almost twenty five percent. Yeah, I mean, a big question for someone like me is, does it, does it really matter that much? I'm not injured. I don't have a history of injuries. I'm not recovering from a, a, a relatively recent injury. Um, again, for me, yeah, you, to me, you, you have to place it into the context of the individual athlete. If this is someone coming back from, you, you, let's say, an ACL injury or an Achilles injury or something, a coach should probably see this and say, well, maybe we need to see what else is going on here. Right. Um, for a healthy athlete, I don't know. I mean, it's certainly telling us for sure that there's more force going through the left leg than the right leg, especially at landing. Um, so, you know, in a basketball player that jumps a lot, that has uh, recurring injuries on the left leg, even if they're not serious, quote unquote, serious injuries, uh, 
this might tell you that something's going on and then you're going to want to work with the either the strength trainer or someone to say, Hey, you know, does he have imbalances when he's doing squats? Does he have imbalances when he's doing plyos? Right. Um, do we need to address that? Is he continue, if he's continuously getting injured, then yeah, it's definitely something that you want to look at. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think also potentially points to, um, you know, like you said, someone who is jumping a lot, um, needing to go and look at the motion data as well and understand, you know, then are, are they moving differently? Yeah. Especially at, at the knee, at the ankle. Yeah. And then that's just, that's just the injury aspect of it. You know, if I was trying, if I was someone and I am someone that doesn't jump very high and I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to improve that. Uh, I wasn't going to throw you under the bus for it. If you're going <laughs> to do it yourself, I'll let you yeah, we should, we could glean we could maybe glean something from the takeoff phase instead of the landing phase. To me, I, I might be wrong about this, but to me the the landing phase seems to be more used for the the injury side of things, and then the takeoff phase more people look at for the performance aspect um, side of things. So, I've got not only let, this is actually a good segue into the next thing I quantified. So I've got the the peak forces. The other things I quantified were the impulse. Under that, under that takeoff phase and under the landing phase, which is the, the force times the time. Um, but the more important thing, I think, for this performance aspect might be the rate at which force is developed. So I took the, the, um, average, the average rate of force development up to the takeoff peak. Okay. So let me, let, me just run, let me just quantify these things, and then I'll plot it. And I think that'll help because I can actually point at the graph. So for the impulse and the rates, what I did was I found, um, I found the, uh, you saw, so on, on the graph, you saw that I was standing there and there was flat lines on either end of the trial. And then there was a little dip and then I jumped and then there was the aerial phase and then there was a big peak and then it went back down into a little dip. So I found the minimums of those little dips and I went from the peaks to those little dips and I looked at the impulse under that time and the rate of force development. And I'll explain this again when I get the plot up here. So one of the things that you're alluding to, I'll let you explain more when you do have the plot up there, but for listeners that might not be so familiar with this, when you're thinking about power generation, when you're thinking about impulse um, of a jump, and if you're looking at the ground reaction force curve, you have to remember to exclude the natural body weight of the individual, right? If you, you want to talk about power production above and beyond what their body is already just naturally putting out. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's a good point, especially here because I did not account for my body weight, but that's very easy to do. I could, I could do that. Uh, let me, let's walk through this and then I'll do that. So what, what Chris is saying is really important especially if you're looking, if you're trying to compare athlete to athlete, right? So Chris is, Chris is heavier than I am. So Chris just standing on a plate is going to register a higher force. And so you need to account for that. Um, but let's walk through this and then I'll just show quickly how, how easy it is to account for that, the body weight. Okay. So again, what I was saying is I found these little minimums here and here these are can you see my mouse chris yep. when i scroll over yeah so the, the green triangles are the minimums and then those green circles are the the takeoff maximums so rate of force development is going to be the average rate 
of force development from the triangle to the circle. Right. right. The average slope of that line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And in Mat MATLAB, that's real easy. It's just some built-in functions. There's an average function and then there's a differentiation function. And that's just how you find the rate, the rate of change from one frame to the next. Yep. And then again, what's really important is that you have to take that from frames, change over frames, to change over time to get a like newtons per second in of uh, units for rate of force development. And for for rate of takeoff force development, why might that be important for an athlete? Uh, why is that variable important? Yeah. So this is how quickly you're generating the force before you jump. So in just standing and jumping, maybe not super important, but in competitions, if you need yeah. to get in the air quick, that's important. So if you're right. a soccer, if you're, yeah, let's say a goalie in soccer and someone kicks the ball high, you better be able to get in the air quick because they kick those balls pretty fast. Right. So, or, or rebounding in basketball. Yeah, exactly. You know, or, or, and, or defense and you need to, you need to jump. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, especially in a reactive sport, yeah, like basketball, soccer, any of those things. Yeah, being able to quickly generate forces might be more important than your ability to generate a high force. Yeah, I, right? I, so think, look, that's, I think that's in a lot of sports. Yeah, so looking at the, the rate at which you can develop force um, might be more telling than your ability to generate a really high force. So that's why it would be important during that takeoff phase, which again, we're associating more with like performance aspects of, of sport. You could also look at the rate of force development or the rate of, uh, yeah, the rate of force development after the landing. So for the landing phase, I actually looked at the rate from their landing point. So right when they hit the ground after the aerial phase up to that peak. So this is basically the rate at which you're loading the body as you hit the ground, right? Um, and I'll plot the numbers in a second. As you can imagine, that peak, the slope of this line here is much steeper than the slope of this line here, right? Yeah. So you're loading the body really quickly with force. And that might tell you, again, something about, you know, injury risk um, and so on, right? When you're loading the body, you're loading biological tissue. So if you're loading the body with high forces over very short periods of time, you're hitting those tissues really hard with a lot of force over a very short period of time. So the rate is super high and each tissue has uh, biological properties that allow it to withstand those kinds of forces or not withstand those kinds of forces. So, right. you know, it's, it's uh, a potentially useful variable is the rate of force development um, during the landing. And then the impulse measure that we're talking about, what I've done is I've go from the, for the takeoff phase, I look at the green triangle to the green circle, and then I find the area under the curve between those two things, right? And so this impulse is going to be Newtons over time. So this is how much force did you put, did you put in over this amount of time? Right. And I did the same thing for the landing, but for the landing, I went from the magenta circle to the magenta triangle. All right, so those are the things that we quantified. We've been talking kind of throughout uh, what they mean. Let me go ahead and just display them. I went back and forth, with Chris, about whether or not I should uh, pull these out into a Excel file, but decided to just no, okay. plot them in here. Yep. 
So these are, look at this. So this is the simplest movement, me just jumping. We're collecting pretty simple data, vertical ground reaction forces. And look at all of the things that we can quantify. Right? And this is just a small, small, small subset of the things that you could quantify. So on each leg, right and left, we've got airtime. We've got peak takeoff force, peak landing force. We've got takeoff rate of force development and landing rate of force development right, for each leg. And then we've got the takeoff and landing impulses. Yep. All right, so let's look at those. The rate of force development. Those, those are right. dramatic. Yeah, so takeoff rate of force development. Six, okay, so this is interesting, Chris. Okay, so my peaks were all higher on my left. Right. The rate of force development is, hot, is 100 newtons per second higher on my right compared to my left. Right. So you need to go see a trainer. Yeah. So like, this is just stuff that sometimes looking at the peaks, which are very easy to find. Sometimes it's not enough. Sometimes you want to dig a little bit deeper. Right. Um, so what we were initially saying is, Oh, maybe the right leg's a little weaker or whatever we were saying. We're not actually saying that, but this is just some things that you could think about when you're right. looking at this kind of data. Now, all of a sudden we're saying, Oh, but it generates force really quickly. So, <laughs> um, but, yeah. the land, but the landing rate of force development is actually still still way higher on the on the left but you can also see just compare the takeoff rate of force development and the landing rate of force development and it's an order of magnitude smaller so yeah and then those impulses we see the same we get basically the same information that we got from the peaks higher impulse on the left compared to the right right but these are just all all things that you could look at within an athlete doing a very simple task and uh, the code that I've written is 200 lines, but in reality, because uh, there's a lot of comments and, and uh, white space in there, it's probably closer to 150 lines. And then I've also plotted a bunch of stuff multiple times just to make the video a little, a little more accessible. Yeah. Um, you know, you're looking at 100 lines of code probably to do this kind of analysis. So it's very lightweight analysis code. You don't need major software to do this kind of thing. Um, which again is like important. You want to be able to get results quickly. Right. Here it is. Real quick. Do you want to, um, show how to, how to take the body weight out? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's say that I've got a body, uh, let's say I've got, oh, look here. I have a comment that I wanted to do it and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say I've got a body mass of, uh, 70, 70 kilograms. So what we would want to do is, so you could normalize it to just body mass, but we're in Newtons. So what we probably want to do is we want to take our body mass and we want to convert it to body weight. So we'll say body weight will be equal to 70 times gravity, 9.81. Okay, so that's my body weight is 686 Newtons. So let's do this. Let's make sure that that's true. So let's say, okay, so our, my body weight is 686 Newtons, roughly speaking. Uh, where I did net, let's change that to what net actually means, which are, which is the sum of these two things and not the average of them. And let's make sure that at the beginning, when I'm just standing on the plate, that we get roughly, uh, 686 
So it's going to look a little, it'll look a, a little strange. So I must have lost a little weight because I'm a little lower here than 686. I'm at about 617, but I'm, you know, I'm probably like 68 kilograms or something. I'd use 70 arbitrarily. But if I didn't know my weight, what I could do is I could look here and I could see all oh, my weight's actually 617 newtons. So that's my body weight. Yep. Okay. So let's, um, let's just roll with, well, let's actually, let's do, let's do it the right way. Let's say my body weight is actually what it is, which is 686 or sorry, no, 617 newtons. Okay. So then to just normalize stuff to body weight, you're just going to basically, um, so you could do it two ways. You could, you could divide it by that or you could subtract it out. I'm going to divide it so that we get basically, if the force is 617, if it's my body weight, then it's going to be equal to one. Mm -hmm. If it's less than that, then it's going to be less than one. And so if it's mm -hmm. higher than 617, then you're going to say, oh, this is 1.5 times body weight or something. Right. Uh, let's make sure though also, because we have two force plates right now, we're going to have to divide that by two. Right. Well, yeah. So that's what I was going to say. So it'll look a little strange because we're on two plates. So the first one, I mean, they should, under each one, it should be 0.5. So there's half my body weight is under each leg. Right. So let's take this out and this out. Okay, so now this is where I parse the data. So we're gonna take, take it and divide it by body weight. So if the force is equal to one body weight, okay, yeah. I wanted to make sure I was doing it in the right order. All right, so let's run that. So my body weight is 617. Okay, so now at the beginning there, my each leg should be about 0.5. So our y-axis should change. Okay, so there it is, right? So I'm at roughly, I mean, one's a little higher than the other, but we saw this We saw this before anyways. But now what you can do is you can say, instead of just having pure Newtons for these peaks, you can say, oh, this person is at 1.4 times body weight on landing on one leg. And closer to one body weight on the other leg. And, and realistically, so I mean, that's, what you're talking about is a combined two to two and a half body weights of force going through your body, going up from your, from your feet to your ankles, knees, hips, so on. Every time you land from a simple vertical jump. Yep. So that I think is why we look at, at landing more for injury, but you're right. Absolutely. On the, the takeoff being more for performance aspects. And yeah. we, see that, we see that each of your legs is able to generate, you know, right around one body weight, worth of worth of total takeoff force yeah so 
Yeah. I mean, this is, it's all stuff that you, sh- you can think about, but the normalizing this stuff to body weight is really important, especially if you are going to be comparing right. to other athletes. And then also if you're going to be collecting data longitudinally, I'm a single athlete. I might, my weight might change. I might be gaining weight throughout a season. And so if I'm hitting the same peak force in just pure Newtons, maybe it's not great because relative to my body weight, that's actually going down if my body weight's going up. Yeah. So all right, let me, I'm going to stop sharing, Chris, and then maybe we can just um, chat briefly and kind of wrap this thing up. Yeah. Do you have any other questions or anything? No, I think this was good, a good run through. Um, for anyone who is interested in a little bit more of some of the coding basics, um, Daniel actually has uh, some videos out on YouTube going through just some simple biomechanical coding. Um, so feel free to check those out or reach out to, to either one of us. We'd be happy to kind of talk through that. But that is something, um, you know, understanding data and helping helping people process it is something that we're looking to, to grow with Alto and um, to really be able to, you know, provide coaches an understanding of their data and, and athletes as well. Yeah, I think um, this is our first time doing this. We'll see what kind of reception we get, but this is something that we're happy to keep doing. Um, if people, I guess, if people like it, we love having guests on because we like, learning about new things as well as teaching people about new things. And so our hope with bringing guests onto the podcast is to, to teach our audience stuff that they don't know about. And at the same time, it's cool for us because we get to learn stuff that we don't know about. Right. right? Um, but the, the coding aspects of biomechanics are things that Chris and I are both really familiar with. And so who knows, maybe, you know, once every four or five weeks, we'll do one of these and we'll just pick a random task and get some data for it and kind of walk through, what we would do with it, how we would code it up, how we would think about the data after it's been coded and we have the actual outcome variables. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun being able to actually, you know, like you were talking about at the beginning, you know, ask, ask the data the questions and be able to really go chase and find those answers. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. I mean, that's, that's for us, I th- well, I don't, I don't want to talk for you, but for me, it's always been cool to just look at data and think, oh, well, here's something interesting. Like what, what would that tell us physiologically? And then can we quantify it across a bunch of different people? Like, is it there constantly? Is it a, is it a biological or physiological phenomenon that, that actually means something? So thinking about what it would mean theoretically and then actually using data to show that it does mean that or it could mean that is, is really cool. Yeah. No, actually, it's not um, not where I started, but definitely yeah. where I got to. I I wanted to hold off coding as long as possible. And <laughs> quickly realized that it was the gateway to really understanding and accessing data in custom ways. Yeah, um, I mean, it's I wanted to buy a software solution for every question I ever asked. Yeah, and there's so, there's certainly software that's plug and play. And then there's some software that's a little more advanced that lets you go in and actually create code yourself. Um, but this is something that we, we offer as a service. Um, if people are interested, if you've got something that you know is in your data, but your, whatever software solution you're using doesn't let you pull it out, like, hey, let us know. We're, we're happy to go in and, and try to pull that out for you. So. Excellent. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up. Um, for this week for episode five so we're off and running and into september but uh thanks for joining us and we look forward to to talking to everybody again soon be sure to check us out at altosportsperformance.com and on 
Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Daniel, it's been been a good time. Uh, be sure to say hi to everyone in Cleveland for you. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care, man. See ya. Yeah.